1827, a young farmer named Joseph Smith was visited by an angel. He was near his house in rural upstate New York at the time, and the angel led him to a hillside and told him to start digging. Smith uncovered a set of ancient gold plates. They were written in strange characters in an ancient language, but God gave Smith divine power to translate the plates into English. This translation became the Book of Mormon, a sacred text revered by members of the Latter-day Saint movement, often known as Mormons. And it has been uh, resonant with, throughout those cultures for well over a century and a half now, uh, and has uh, in some ways been an anchor point in the development of one of the most remarkable uh, stories of new religious uh, religions appearing on the American and global landscape. My name is David Holland. Uh, I am a professor of American religious history. I'm on the faculty of the Harvard Divinity School. Today, there are roughly 16 million Mormons worldwide. Most are members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, which has its headquarters in Salt Lake City, Utah, and is led by a prophet and 12 apostles. I myself am Mormon. I grew up learning the story of Joseph Smith and his discovery and translation of the Book of Mormon. I was taught that next to the birth, death, and resurrection of Jesus, this was the most important event in world history. The reason it is such an important story for Mormons is because they believe Joseph Smith was chosen by God to restore the early Christian church. In their eyes, the church Jesus started had strayed away from his original teachings over the centuries. The miraculous discovery, translation, and publication of the Book of Mormon is seen by believers as evidence of the divine nature of this restoration. The Book of Mormon is a text with many similarities to the Bible, but it emerged in a very different context, 19th century America. The book has multiple authors. It covers a thousand years. There are kind of first-person narratives and summations of lengthy histories and the inclusion of ancient sermons and dream sequences. So it's, it's this extraordinarily complex production that really does set it apart from uh, a world that was generally interested in revelatory experience and, and sacred writing. Uh, but, but this book is quite distinctive, even as it is not wholly unrelated to the context in which it appears. Welcome to Writ Large, a podcast about how books change the world. I'm Zachary Davis. In each episode, I talk with one of the world's leading scholars about one book that changed the course of history. For this episode, I sat down with Professor David Holland to discuss the Book of Mormon. What do we know about Joseph Smith's origins and family life and how he became this translator of this sacred text? So Smith uh, had an upbringing that was in many ways quite typical uh, for uh, people on the American frontier in the early 19th century. He was born in 1805. Uh, his family had moved from farm to farm on the basis of um, economic downturn and uh, crop failure, uh, among other things. They ended up in what came to be known as the burned over district uh, of upstate New York, which was so named because it had been the site of repeated 
religious revivals and was a place of some uh, religious creativity. In fact, various American new religious movements uh, have historical connections to the area. It was a time and place of enormous religious fervor and experimentation. Many new Christian denominations were cropping up, and Joseph's own parents disagreed about which one to join. Joseph's mother joined the Presbyterians, who believed in the supreme authority of the scriptures. His father was drawn toward the Methodists, who recognized human agency in the pursuit of salvation. So you get these kind of two parental figures who uh, were representative of a great theological uh, debate at the moment. And you have Joseph Smith, who is sort of heavily influenced by the seeking that he sees going on around him and the claims to different modes of religious authority. Smith was very interested in religion from a young age, but he was confused by all the competing denominations at the time and longed for religious clarity. That clarity came to him in the form of a vision. Smith claimed that when he was 14, he was praying in the woods to know which church was true. Suddenly, a bright light descended upon him, and in the midst of that light were God and Jesus Christ. They called his name and told him that all the churches had drifted away from the true gospel and that they had chosen him to restore it. The story was amazing, but to Smith's contemporaries, not unbelievable. The idea of encountering angels or divinity itself was not all that uncommon in Smith's environment. Um, there are scores and scores, hundreds of accounts of other visionaries having uh, roughly similar kinds of experiences to the kinds that Smith was describing. This vision left Smith feeling that he had an important role to play in God's work. He had been called to bring clarity to his religiously chaotic environment, but he didn't know yet how he would fulfill God's calling. Three years later, he got his answer. Smith said that one night, an angel appeared in his bedroom and told him that there were gold plates buried in a nearby hill. The angel told him his name was Moroni and that he was an ancient prophet and one of the authors of the gold plates. Moroni showed Joseph where the plates were hidden and told him that God's purposes would be fulfilled by publishing this ancient book. And with those plates, he found a set of what he called interpreters and kind of ancient device for translation. Smith said the writing on the plates looked similar to hieroglyphics. And the book's own uh, sort of... Um, affirmation is that it was written in reformed Egyptian, uh, which uh, is understood to be um, sort of characters of Egyptian origin, but the grammatical structures of Hebrew. He took the plates home and began translating them into English using the interpreters. Eventually began translating, dictating the text uh, at various times to various scribes, uh, including his own wife, Emma, to an associate who would later mortgage his own farm to finance the publication of the book, to a school teacher who was passing through town and caught word of Smith's project. So a number of people were involved in this translation effort. And those who witnessed the translation process um, in their own kind of testimony about this insisted that Smith didn't have any manuscript notes or anything in front of him. He just dictated words hour after hour. When the translation was complete, they had a book that was nearly 600 pages long. And the story 
found in the content of that book offers a thousand year history of a group of um, Israelite refugees who fled Jerusalem prior to the Babylonian destruction uh, of that city. And the group that fled consists of two families and a few others uh, who made their way to the coast of the Arabian Peninsula and then across the ocean in a boat of their own construction until they hit the American continent. Once they reached North America, their community grew, eventually splitting into two major societies called the Nephites and the Lamanites. These two groups were constantly at war with each other. In the societies lived prophets who served as moral and religious teachers. And so the Book of Mormon is this sort of interweaving of this narrative history of these people with the doctrinal pronouncements of these prophetic figures. So in a typical passage, one might find a description of a battle or a moment of civil unrest, and then a lengthy sermon by a prophet who is trying to heal the society by declaring gospel doctrines about faith or about righteousness or justice or these kinds of things. Roughly two-thirds of the way into the text, Jesus comes down from heaven to visit the Americas. He preaches and heals among these people for a few days, and his visitation leaves a profound impression on the text. And though the narrative stretches on for about 400 years after his appearance, uh, that historical episode becomes the dominant, dominant reference point for everything else that follows. How does the Book of Mormon help create a sacralized America? Um, how does it create a deep myth that is satisfying? The notion that God was aware of the Americas, uh, that it wasn't a kind of afterthought. This was one of the recurring challenges in the early era of European imperial expansion is when you expand out into a world that the Bible doesn't seem to comment on, what do you do with it? Is it somehow a space beyond God's management or concern? Uh, is it um, you know, referenced in the Bible in opaque or obscuring ways? So you have a great deal of intellectual energy unleashed about what to do with the Western Hemisphere. Uh, among European writers. Uh, and the, the impulse is either to suggest that it's a place without meaning, or it is to try and figure out how that place connects with the sacred narratives that they already understood. And the Book of Mormon certainly does the latter uh, for those that are hungry for that option. And I think many people were. The Book of Mormon offered a rich, ancient history for the Americas that connected to European Christian narratives. It was the missing piece to the puzzle, and it offered an explanation for a biblical mystery. And my understanding is that the lost 10 tribes of Israel plays an important role in a possible story for how the continent is sacralized. Um, could you say a little bit about the interest in the whereabouts of the 10 tribes and how that intersects with the Book of Mormon? So for readers of the Bible, uh, and this, this certainly includes um, those who participate in uh, Jewish traditions and Christian traditions, to some extent Islamic traditions as well, uh, the question of God's special covenantal relationship with Israel has had enormous cultural presence and significance. Uh, 
you know, this idea that there's a particular nation with a particular relationship to God uh, and that has particular responsibilities to spread light and truth, you know, throughout the world uh, has been, you know, the, 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 one of the Bible's claims that has been most generative of intellectual exploration and imagination. In the biblical story, there are 12 tribes of Israel that were expelled from the kingdom of Israel after it was conquered by the Neo-Assyrian Empire in 722 BC. The Bible tells the history of two of those tribes. But there are these other tribes, these 10 tribes that are otherwise unaccounted for uh, in the biblical record. When the tribes left Israel, they were supposed to bring the truth about God to the rest of the world. For centuries, people have wondered where these tribes are and what they've been doing all these years. And so the Book of Mormon um, presents itself as the record of uh, at least one portion of one of those tribes. Uh, and um, that it um, helps offer one piece of that uh, diasporic puzzle. And so the Book of Mormon is even more capacious than just a story of the restoration of lost tribes, though it's often presented that way. Um, it, it's, a, it's a piece of the story of God's global relationship with all of humanity in which the tribes of Israel play a special role, but not the only role. Uh, and so it, 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 it balances both the particularity of, uh, of the Israelite story and the universality of the human story. It meets a kind of intellectual and conceptual and emotional need that had been present for those trying to find the, uh, an understanding of the American continent's place in God's drama for humanity from, from the earliest stages of, of European imperialism. Of course, there were already people on the American continent before the Europeans arrived. The Book of Mormon had to account for these Native Americans as well. In the book, there is a story of a final war between the Lamanites and the Nephites. The Lamanites are seen as wicked rivals to the more righteous Nephites. In the war, the Lamanites defeat the Nephites, wiping out their culture and population. Only one Nephite survived, Moroni. Before he died, he buried the gold plates in the hill Cumorah. In Mormon culture, Native Americans are believed to be the primary descendants of the Lamanites. In the Book of Mormon, the Lamanites were cursed with darker skin as a punishment for their wickedness and are often described as being savage and illiterate. One reading of the book is that it reinforces uh, a kind of racist assumption of white supremacy. Um, there are passages of the book that can and have been read as suggesting uh, that skin color is a reflection of uh, righteousness and that whiteness is the kind of unraced race. It is the uh, standard racial identity and that variations on that are a reflection of human imperfection. Um, and, and certainly, uh, you know, a history of, uh, of racial, uh, racialized policy and exclusion and antagonism has dogged the, uh, the Latter-day Saint tradition for a long time, and the Book of Mormon has had its role in that. And so the book, again, in its complexity, <clears throat> can be put to, to various 
purposes and the, and the ways in which it accounts for what has traditionally been seen as the origins of Native Americans uh, has been uh, has been productive of, of a great deal of racially insensitive and even um, uh, deeply damaging uh, kinds of interpretations. In alternative readings of the Book of Mormon, sort of the, the the larger coherent narrative arc is is about the dangers of racial antagonism. It's about the problem of racialized divisions and the ways in which that can actually destroy civilizations if not addressed. Uh, and the idea that that God's work is to reconcile um, those those hatreds into shared love. And I think you're seeing a movement toward that alternative reading and really some productive scholarship around that move. And so I'm very eager to see what that side of the interpretive story produces. So we've spoken about the theological and the literary mythical qualities of the book, but arguably, of course, the most important impact of the book was the creation of the Mormon people. And could you paint us a picture of how does Joseph Smith create this church and, you know, a high level view of <laughs> what are the people today? Who are, who are we? The role of the Book of Mormon in the founding of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is, is, is in itself a, a complicated narrative. Uh, the book is published before the church is founded. Uh, though they occur, you know, in close proximity to one another. Uh, and so in that sense, it really is kind of a, a founding declaration um, that something is happening, that God is speaking, that truth is being revealed, that, that you know, these evidences of divine involvement in the world are in fact um, coming forth. And that very much creates this sort of energy that something remarkable is afoot and that this prophetic figure, Joseph Smith, is at the heart of it. Joseph Smith founded the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints in 1830, just a few days after he published the Book of Mormon. A year later, he moved west to Ohio and then Missouri and attempted to establish the church's headquarters there. But the other settlers in Missouri rejected this strange new religious group and by 1833, they had violently expelled Smith and his followers from the area. So, Smith moved to Illinois and established a new headquarters on the banks of the Mississippi River. This became the town of Nauvoo. The church grew rapidly and started sending missionaries to Europe. Many of the new European converts came to Nauvoo, which soon became larger than Chicago. But the growth of the church and its unorthodox teachings and practices once again inspired fear, and in 1844, Joseph Smith was murdered by an angry mob in Carthage, Illinois. A young, charismatic convert named Brigham Young took over and led the members of the church on an epic journey across the western United States by wagon, handcar, and foot to the empty deserts of Utah, where the headquarters still are today. The Book of Mormon played a crucial role in the founding of the LDS Church, but it wasn't the main text that defined Mormon theology. Joseph Smith's direct revelations, collected into a book called The Doctrine and Covenants, were much more significant initially. Interestingly enough, even though the book has been around since 1830, um, it's only been in the last um, three or four decades that it has really begun to achieve its um, 
central theological role uh, in 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 Mormon cultures, plural, um, but specifically in the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter Day Saints. What was the reaction to the public uh, upon hearing Joseph's stories and then seeing this book that he produced? Well, the the book actually starts to generate controversy before it's ever even published. Um, so announcement of a, a, quote, new gold Bible began leaking into local newspapers in the weeks leading up to its appearance. Once it was out and circulating, you know, any number of critics pounced on it. And I would say the initial public response was overwhelmingly negative. Most of the criticism came from Orthodox Christians who felt it was trying to rival the Bible. One of the most notable critics was a man named Alexander Campbell. Campbell was a founding figure in the Disciples of Christ movement, which, like Smith, was committed to restoring biblical Christianity, but in a very different way. So Campbell scoffed that the Book of Mormon transparently tried to resolve all the great Christian doctrinal disputes. And he, he points out that it even tries to touch on issues of kind of present political concern, such as the nature of Republican government or the you know, human rights. And part of his critique is one that we'll hear over and over again is that the book has, you know, problems of history, anachronisms, um, in addition to its impious pretensions. And Campbell's one of these figures who calls it a new Bible. Uh, and that phrase, a new Bible, has been articulated over and over again in, in assessments of the text. The phrase alludes to this cultural reaction among certain Christian critics of the book, that the text posits itself as a kind of competitor to or even an improvement on the biblical record, suggesting that the Book of Mormon is locked in this sort of zero-sum contest with the Bible. But they weren't the only ones who had a problem with it. And then interestingly enough, you have the kind of secular reading on the other side that's not all that dissimilar from the Orthodox Christian reading of it, uh, with, with a slight twist, which is that secular critics of the book have seen it as a kind of statement of American exceptionalism, an effort to sacralize the history of the American continent in a way that's sort of a, a jealous competition with the sacred histories of the old world. You know, the, the longstanding historical um, orthodoxy has been that, you know, the United States suffered for a lack of history and felt itself sort of unrooted to an ancient past and thus inferior to a European tradition that could trace its origins back to classical civilizations. There is even a passage in the book that many readers interpret as suggesting God led Christopher Columbus to land in the Americas in 1492. Both the Christian and secular criticisms push against the new claims and new history the book presented. They felt it was positioning itself as superior to antiquity and the Bible. But I have to say that the, the internal content of the book does not actually position itself in anything like this uh, orientation. Instead, it, I, I read it as actually working against such an interpretation, uh, that, that its, its sense of itself is of opening up a kind of global economy of inspired texts in which it and the Bible and other texts play contributing roles. The Book of Mormon points out flaws in the Bible and also draws attention to some of its own deficiencies. These flaws don't invalidate sacred texts. They put them in conversation. 
So it paints this kind of portrait of a world of inspired but imperfect texts from every land that will someday come together in a kind of millennial chorus of revealed truth. The combination of the voices making up for the individual errors of any specific text in the same way that a choir um, kind of hits the right note because the variations of any individuals are equalized out in the collective. So you have this sort of chorus of texts promised in which the Book of Mormon is situated itself as one among many. It presents itself as one voice in a diverse global family of sacred writings, significant both for the specific story it adds, but also, I think, for the capacious conception of revelation that it represents. And so this is sort of what is meant by devotional readers when they use that kind of phrasing. In fact, some scholars have argued that the book serves as a kind of answer to the religious skepticism that was creeping into Western cultural life at the period of its publication. Uh, to, to these kinds of scholars, it seems more than coincidental that at just the point in history when ra rationalistic skeptics and biblical critics and other kinds of cultural commentators began raising troubling questions about the, verac the veracity of the Bible accounts uh, of this man named Jesus, along came another text to serve as this kind of additional eyewitness that he was divine, that he was the son of God, that he was the savior of the world. So that kind of central moment becomes the kind of anchor around which the entire thousand-year narrative circulates um, throughout the book. Could you help us think through how does the Book of Mormon and Joseph Smith's religious teachings and organizing on the one hand fit within a pluralistic society and on the other try to be a response to the anxiety that so many different options produces. So if you go back to sort of my analogy of the choir, there is a correct pitch, right? There is, there is a note to hit um, that works in a kind of universal natural law kind of way. Um, and any individual voice will approximate that perfect truth. Uh, and that actually the proliferation of voices seeking to sing that note will come closer to its pure pitch. And so the Book of Mormon is not positing many truths in that sense. It is pointing to one truth, but it's also opening up in the space for multiple articulations of that truth and situating itself as one among those. Uh, the Bible also as one among those. Um, and so the full implications of that, I think, uh, have yet to be worked out in, in the cultures of the readers of the book. But it does, it does offer, I think, in a sense, an interesting alternative to this sort of um, modern debate between you know, objective truth and relative truth. Uh, it posits the existence of objective truth, and it recognizes its own fallibility as an expression of it and its own need to be put into conversation with other articulations of it. How that relates to the larger culture of the Latter-day Saints, I think, is quite interesting. There's obviously a difference between you know what I think the theological resources of, uh, of Latter-day Saint belief offer and the actual history of how those have been interpreted. I think the interpretation has been 
at times, uh, especially exclusivist, um, that, that, you know, that, that Latter-day Saints have the truth and the whole truth and, uh, and, um, and that other articulations of it are unneeded. But Joseph Smith himself spoke in terms of uh, an effort to gather up truth wherever it could be found. Um, the idea that the actual structure of the faith is still being built and that part of that building process includes the discoveries of science and, uh, and philosophy and encounters with other religious traditions. Uh, and I think the Book of Mormon becomes a kind of foundation for that. In the early 1800s, another influential movement was taking place in the United States called Transcendentalism. The Transcendentalist favored subjective intuition over objective empiricism. They also had an interest in breaking down the exclusive authority of the Bible, believing the voice of God might be heard in a person's own soul. Some of its key figures include Ralph Waldo Emerson, Margaret Fuller, and Theodore Parker. So they're part of this same culture in which the book appears, uh, and they're making a comparable move uh, to break Revelation out of the narrow confines into which some forms of uh, Orthodox Christianity had seemed to place it. But they do that by um, kind of reducing the supernatural significance of Revelation. That is, Revelation becomes naturalized. It becomes kind of the voice of conscience that is in every individual. And that's a really effective way to democratize revelation, but it changes kind of the, the nature of the revelatory experience. But the Book of Mormon is quite different from that. Uh, and, and we can see it as sort of appealing to maybe something of the same impulse, but in a radically different way, which is there, in some ways, the Book of Mormon amplifies the supernatural nature of Revelation, the very way in which the book was found, the presence of angels, and this idea of miraculous translation from a language that nobody knew through a, a, a young prophetic figure who uh, knew no other languages. The text very conveniently arises right as Enlightenment thought starts seeping into broader American and religious life. How had rationalist ideas or enlightenment ideas changed the way American religions um, and religious you know, communities were thinking about themselves and their relationship to the divine and revelation and miracles. And can we read the Book of Mormon as, you know, this giant volley back that, that asserts that no miracles are real, God still speaks, the enlightenment is wrong? The idea of uh, of the Enlightenment as in some kind of binary um, competition with religious faith in which, you know, any gains from one were lost to the other. Um, we need to be very careful about that. And the Book of Mormon is actually a good example of the complex relationship between persistent religious faith and some of the rationalizing elements of, uh, of Enlightenment thought. So, um, in one case, what you've said, Zach, is exactly right. So, in a world where the miraculous was under new kinds of pressure, you have skeptical figures in the mid-18th century like David Hume famously pointing out the 
you know, the irrationality of believing in miraculous claims uh, and that that is, uh, you know, making its way into American life through people like, you know, Thomas Paine and, and other religious skeptics. And so to say that mir- miracles still occur, occur, God still speaks, and the world is not as disenchanted uh, as, uh, as rationalizing moderns were trying to make it, it definitely does that. And in fact, in the content, there are repeated moments where it talks about how sad it would be to live in a world where uh, miracles were not believed in anymore, that that would cut off the influence of God and the divine love and mercy uh, of Jesus Christ that humanity needs so much. The Book of Mormon positions itself as empirical evidence for the miraculous. It walks a fine line between revelatory experience and rationalist knowledge. And so the idea that an individual can, in fact, know for themselves through an encounter with the Holy Spirit that this book is true is in a, in a way that maybe 21st century readers have a hard time perceiving, but it is, in fact, a kind of Enlightenment empiricist claim which is that you don't have to take it on the authority of anybody else. Uh, You don't have to only believe in accounts of the miraculous from 2,000 years ago that uh, are difficult to verify. That we have a miracle in the present day, and you can have a spiritual encounter in the present day. And here, here's this book whose 500 pages you can hold in your hand as a kind of tangible, tactile encounter with Scripture um, that provides another data point in the argument for the Christian understanding of the world. So it's both an assertion of the miraculous against the forces of disenchantment, but also participating in the empiricism of its moment as a data point for making rational decisions about whether one can believe, for instance, in the divinity of Jesus Christ or not. This reading still resonates for many Mormons today. Thinking about you know, the place of this book in a modern conversation about truth, uh, about objectivity, about you know, relativity, um, in that sense, it's very much speaking to the intellectual crises of our moment. Uh, you know, how do you sort through the universal and the particular? How do you sort through the relative and the objective? Um, I think the book offers a kind of alternative path to the ones that have placed us in a kind of intellectual cul-de-sac uh, for much of modernity. The contemporary Latter-day Saint Church looks very different than the church Joseph Smith founded in 1830. One of the things that's happened in recent years is the actual demographic center, uh, the sort of Mormon cultures, that's cultures that have come out of the Book of Mormon, um, might be shifting for the first time if you just take the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints as an example, more more members outside the United States than within. Uh, a, a, sh- a shift uh, that takes place, you know, um, decades after um, the Book of Mormon was published, but a shift from the idea of gathering the saints to a place in the United States that is bringing in converts to a geographical center to uh, in the United States to a, a movement to build um, to build Zion and build the kingdom of God in local 
um, communities and countries around the world. The Book of Mormon offered the United States a version of Christianity that tied them into the larger biblical story. But, Professor Holland says, it also offers a global understanding of Christianity. The American continent is a promised land for a people. But again, I think passages of the Book of Mormon suggest that for other people uh, and other tribes, other lands, um, that there are other promised lands, there are other stories, there are other narratives to be told in which people were led to other places. So in a sense, if you think about this sort of dynamic relationship uh, between the Book of Mormon and the Bible, right? The Bible is the story of a particular place, and in that story, that place is central. It is the promised land. The Book of Mormon is the story of another place, and in that story, that land is central. It's the promised land. Uh, and so rather than thinking of those as sort of two competing promised lands, they actually point to this idea that God works with all peoples in their lands to forge a revelatory relationship with them, and that the Book of Mormon offers one example of that, but that that example is not exclusive of other possibilities, and that part of the lesson of the book is to keep eyes and ears open to um, the diversities of ways and diversities of peoples and artifacts through which God is doing his work in the world. The Book of Mormon opened the door to the idea that God is not limited to the Bible. The Book of Mormon is kind of the original um, declaration of this religious tradition uh, that the voice of God is not limited to a particular time or place or text, but that it is um, capable of communicating through all kinds of people in all kinds of places in all kinds of ways, and that the uh, accumulated effect of those messages is actually more powerful than the singularity of one individual textual voice that begins to stretch this conception of what sacred scripture might be uh, and where it might come from uh, and what the what the possibilities of scripturalization the scripturalization of text to, to elevate them to the uh, to the office of um, Holy Writ uh, is sort of introduced with the Book of Mormon in a truly radical way. It has kind of expanded the conception of ways in which the divine might be communicating with humanity and the textual manifestations of that communication. Each day, millions of people read the Book of Mormon and look for ways to apply its teachings. Each Sunday, members of the church come together to hear sermons inspired by the Book of Mormon. Each year, thousands of young Mormons volunteer to leave their normal lives for two years to become full-time missionaries and share the message of this holy book in nearly every country on earth. The Book of Mormon sacralized America and created a new form of Christianity that shapes the lives and beliefs of millions worldwide. Writ Large is produced by Galen Beebe, Jack Pombriant, and me, Zachary Davis. We get help from Ferrandu, and our intern is Liza French. Our theme song is by Ian Koss. Our branding is by Dan Petchy. We're a member of Lit Hub Radio. Writ Large is a Lyceum original production. Join our discussion room in the Lyceum app to share your thoughts and hear what other listeners are saying. You can also find us on Twitter at writlargepod and on our website, writlarge.fm. 
There, you'll find transcripts and links to the books we discussed. Thanks for listening. See you next time.